Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where today is going to be a very interesting day, as it is each and every single week here at Talk Junkies. Uh, taking the past couple weeks off, um, been at it for five years, every Sunday for the past five years, so just taking a kind of a mental break from podcasting for a little bit. Uh, but if you're interested in the last podcast that I did, it was with Mike Anderson, an OG here on Talk Junkies. Um, kind of came on, talked about his potential fourth book that he's writing, and we just got into the the general landscape of politics when it comes to conservatives and liberals and how we think and how that's shaped our society for what it is today. So if that's of interest to you, definitely check out that podcast with Mike Anderson. Mike, thanks for coming on the show, man. It's always a, always a great time when you're on. Uh, today's going to be a very interesting day. We have a gentleman who's been, he's been through it, man. He, he's done a lot of things that um, a lot of people want to do, but they just don't have the courage to do it or the time or just, you know, there's so many different things going on in life to try and find time to do these types of things, to find out who you are and what your purpose is here on life. Um, he's got a lot more to talk about than just that, but his name is Josh Matthew. Thank you for joining, man. I got your book here in the footsteps of greatness. I'm very excited to talk about that. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, like I said, before we started recording, I, I do a lot of different things and I um, I'm never quite sure what I'm going to be asked on an interview. And I haven't had a chance to talk about that book or my, my wilderness experience and my passion for, for being outside and what that teaches you about yourself. Uh, so yeah, totally down to talk about, about that and anything else. Well, I know you're also in fitness and, uh, I think where it struck me was that you, you described yourself as a holistic fitness type of person. Um, me, my wife and and our three kids, we strive to be very holistic in our lifestyle. It is very hard to do that in the in the Western culture. Uh, so I'm very interested to talk about that as well, man. Yeah, ho holistic is a word that I think is kind of a buzzword and is often overused. Like, what does it even mean? Right. But but I I use it to describe the work I do often because I think it's really the most accurate. You know, I started in this work 20 years ago as a nutritionist uh, and a personal trainer. And I thought I would just tell people what to do. We'd do some bicep curls. I would break down macronutrients and everybody would sing Kumbaya and, and meet their goals. And I realized pretty quickly that, no, it's way more complicated and nuanced than that. And the system is really interconnected and change and happiness and growth and connection are all about like what's happening in your heart, what's happening in between your ears. And bicep curls are awesome and, you know, eating healthy is really important, but everything is really connected. So over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, I've really become kind of an expert and really passionate about how all of that stuff works together. Um, and I'm not sure if I coined the term holistic happiness or not, but I use that to talk about what I do. And it's, it's really something I love. Uh, I love just facilitating change and helping people get better every day. Um, just a little bit and kind of step into the strongest versions of who they are. So all the stuff I do kind of centers from that. Like, I just want to help people be the best versions of themselves. And, you know, we're only here once. Um, let, we might as well, we might as well dig in, right? hundred percent. So what you're saying, uh, just correct me if I'm wrong. You can, you can work out all you want. You can eat all the right things. But those, those are just two things of many things that you have to do to complement the body to be the best version of yourself. Um, so kind of when did you find, when did you find that out in, in your journey in the past 10 years that, hey, it takes a little bit more than just, just what we're normally taught? 
<laughs> well, I would say what you said is yes, plus complement the body and the spirit um, and the mind, like all of that is, is important. Uh, so while the working out and the eating right is what you need to do for your body, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the best version of you or as healthy as possible. You know, if you're not paying attention to your emotional health and your spiritual health and your mental health, it doesn't really matter, in my opinion, how big your biceps are or how much broccoli you eat. Like all of it's really important and it synergistically works together. Um, and how did I discover that? I don't know. I think just kind of over time, like it was it was really frustrating at first to realize, you know, I used to give people super detailed two week nutrition meal plans, tell them exactly what to do. And then it would drive me crazy when people wouldn't do it. It's like you're paying me lots of money and I'm spending all this time to create this thing for you. Where's that disconnect? Why aren't you doing what I'm telling you to do? And of course, now, you know, 20 years later, whatever, 18 years later, that's not surprising at all. That's not the way change works. Change isn't linear. Change isn't even about knowledge, really, usually. Uh, it's about the brain wiring, the, the emotional wiring. Like, why do I make decisions that hold me back? Why do I say I want one thing and then do something else? Like, that's what we all do. That's part of the human experience. Uh, and it's really complicated um, and takes a long time and it's uncomfortable, which is why most people don't change. Uh, so I've just, I've really, I've really dedicated my life to the study and science and practice of change. And I am by no means, you know, arrived. There's a lot more to learn. I am still frustrated often in my work with my clients, but I would, I would say, you know, we're moving in the right direction both we, me and my clients, and we as a scientific community learning more about the science of change and why what works for you might not work for me and how to strategically apply this science to move in the direction we want to head more often than not, because that's really what change is about. Okay. And, you know, it's changes more than just your motivation. If you're relying on your personal motivation, as you've probably experienced, eventually that's going to be limiting and you're going to go back to your old habits. So we really need to marshal more forces of good, which is what I call them, to help us against all the forces that are holding us back. Because there's, there's a ton of forces, just normal life, that hold us back from stepping into the strongest versions of who we are. So it's all about using strategy and mindfulness to move in the direction we want to head more often than not. I completely agree with you, man. Um, and so for me, that's been the biggest struggle as well is just motivation, finding it, um, being into your habits. I would almost credit that to just Western ideology or Western philosophy that we've gotten so technological advanced in such a fast period of time that we literally look for problems that aren't there. You know what I'm saying? Because we're so bored in our everyday life I mean, I call it the rat race, you know, just the average American, man, we're working to put food on the table, we're working to put a, a house over our, our, you know, a house over our, or, sorry, a roof over our head. And you just get caught up in just doing the same thing every single day. And every single day you build those habits. 
you know, I, that's almost frustrating to me because I'm always trying to find the way out, you know, and I'm kind of curious, how do you get outside of that? I mean, what other things do you need to come into your life to help you get rid of those bad habits or find that motivation that's in you? That's a, that's a really good question and multifaceted. I think we could talk about this for an hour. I'll do my best <laughs> to answer it with a, a few sound bites. I think one is to just try to be mindful. And that's, that's another buzzword, but it's really important. And what I mean by that is just the uh, ability and willingness to step back, to step outside of yourself and watch yourself in your normal day rather than just going through the normal routine and the normal habits and the normal minutia of your life. You know, I get up, I brush my teeth, I eat breakfast, I take the kids to school, I go to work, I work until noon, I have lunch. You know, the, it's very easy to just click into our lives. And that's actually by design, evolutionarily, uh, we don't like to make decisions. So our brain kind of goes onto autopilot when it can to save energy. And the, the dark side of that is we can autopilot our whole lives. <laughs> so I really like to help my clients learn to step back and just watch themselves in their lives and have more decision, more choice. I really think decision and choice is a linchpin, a keystone to being happy uh, because then we are choosing how we want to spend our lives and what we want to be doing rather than just walking like a robot to the refrigerator, eating the ice cream, and then waking up with a chocolate mustache an hour <laughs> later, not even realizing what we did, right? Like we've all done that. And if you want to have ice cream, great. I'm not saying no ice cream, but I want you to choose thoughtfully, mindfully, strategically. I want to eat that ice cream. It's part of my healthy day. I had a great day, I exercised a lot, I had a really healthy dinner, and I'm gonna have a little ice cream on purpose uh, because I don't need to be perfect and ice cream is good. So, so it might look the same to the outside, but internally, I think a really important piece of being here intentionally and living our best lives is having as much choice as possible. And that, that starts with mindfulness, just seeing what you're doing, because then you can choose, well, that's not actually taking me where I want to go. So Josh, how do you, how do you see it? How do you step back and kind of watch yourself do these types of things? Because I'll be honest, man, there are, you know, multiple times throughout the year, I'll be like, okay, I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit this healthy stretch. I'm going to start eating a little bit better. Um, then I'll be at work, you know, I get half off of food. Then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about what it is I'm going to eat. And, and funny enough that you say that, like before the shift, I think that I'm, I'm mindful, I guess, in that regard on what you just said. I'm mindful. I'm like, I need to watch what I eat. But then when it comes time, my brain doesn't re my brain's on autopilot. Every, right. So much things are going on in the restaurant that I just literally press in what it is I want without even being mindful about it. And I just order the food that's not good for me. Yes. So that makes you human. That makes you very normal. The, the way out of that is practice and to have grace with yourself. Like it is, a, it is a process. We just need to switch the brain wiring. So the good news is every time we are able to be successfully mindful, we're building new brain wiring and it makes it easy for next time. Um, so a couple things. One, a couple things to build mindfulness because you, you asked me how do you practice this. I would say the best way to build mindfulness is meditation. Um, 
you've probably talked about that with at least five people before on this <laughs> podcast. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, it's funny when I started meditating, nobody meditated. And now it's a thing and everybody meditates. So, you know, we don't have to talk in super detail about this. Everybody knows what meditation is, but I would just say there is no right way to meditate. Meditation is simply about doing it. It's about the, it's the art of non doing. So you don't need to feel like you're doing something. It's just about sitting there and being with your thoughts. And when your brain runs away, because it will, it's about noticing that at some point and bringing it back. So a lot of my clients are afraid to meditate because they think they're going to do it wrong. And they think there's some end game where you need to be able to like levitate. The way a monk <laughs> it's, it's not like that. It is just about sitting and being. And even if you can only do it for five minutes a day, it's really worth it. And this is tangible. The reason I'm bringing this up right now is because this has been studied. There's science around this. Just sitting there with your eyes closed, focusing on your breath, your mind runs away and you bring it back. Just doing that builds space. It builds noticeable space between yourself and the outside world, which creates choice. So when your spouse does something that you would normally get really angry at immediately, instantly, and say something you regret, meditation creates a two, three second delay there. So you can watch, oh, my wife just said something that makes me angry. I feel angry. I'm going to choose not to react. Meditation does that noticeably, measurably. I've felt it myself. Science shows it. Anybody who's meditated for any length of time notices that space. And not only does that help you be a better human and a better spouse and a better uh, parent, it helps create mindfulness in your whole life. So you can go, oh, I'm walking to the refrigerator to get ice cream. Do I actually want to eat the ice cream? Maybe you do, but you can at least choose. So that's, that's the one thing I would say is meditation brings mindfulness. And there's a ton of ways to do it. 20 minutes is great. An hour is great. But even if you can only do five minutes, it's worth it. And not, and not only that, but you have to like, just doing it in general, yes, is definitely beneficial. I've had spurts in my life where I've meditated for a couple of weeks at a time. And then, you know, I fall back into my bad habits and I don't do it anymore. Uh, definitely for me, I, I noticed, I didn't notice the small detail like that because I wasn't really looking for it. But would you also say kind of just to not brush aside meditation, but with age also comes mindfulness, like, like as you get older, because I'm 34 years old. Um, and I start to see things differently and, and I'm more mindful just because I'm, I'm getting older. Yeah, that's an interesting question that I've never really thought about before, but I think you're right. I don't know that it creates that space I'm talking about, but it definitely creates perspective. And I know I think about things way differently, uh, now that I'm a little older, I care about things I never cared about before. I care about the world and other people in a deeper, broader way than I did when I was 25, when I just cared about myself. Um, so I think that's maybe something slightly different, but also really, really important for this equation. I think that's a good point. Okay. So what are your thoughts on, do you, and, and you still practice the nutrition, you have lots of clients, you try and help them with their journey and whatnot. Um, there's this big trend on, on TikTok and all these, all, and maybe other social media is about fasting. And the benefits of fasting. What are, what are your kind of your thoughts on on fasting in general? 
That's a great question. <laughs> um, so it's been pretty well proven, I would say, over the last 15, 20 years that eating less increases our lifespans. Like that, I think that's pretty much scientific fact at this point. Now, what that means and how we do that, I think we can argue about that. <laughs> um, but restricting calories increases lifespan in humans and, and other mammals. That, that's pretty well studied. There's a really good book called The Longevity Diet, which I hate the name of that because it's not a diet. It's, it's kind of a strategy and science. Uh, but Walter Longo is the head of the Longevity Institute. I'm probably getting that wrong. He's the head of a longevity uh, program at USC. And, you know, he's been studying this stuff for 40 years. So if you really want to dive into some science around this stuff, uh, that's a great place to start. Um, but I think there's ways to fast that are maybe healthier and more appropriate, depending on who you are and what you're trying to do. Um, you know, like if you are a woman, Definitely a woman over like 40, 45, fasting probably isn't as helpful for you as it would be for a man just because of the way their metabolisms and hormones work. Um, there's also like what is fasting? There's fasting for a day. So not eating for a day would be fasting. Not eating for a week would be fasting. Not eating for 12 hours is also considered fasting. <laughs> Uh, then there's intermittent fasting. That's that's like the 12 hour, 16 hour, 18 hour. That's what most people think of as fasting. I think probably right now is intermittent fasting. So going periods of not eating in an otherwise eating time period versus fasting for like a week. So in general, from what I have seen and the science I've looked at, an overnight fast, like a 12 hour fast from you know seven to seven. That's probably healthy for everybody and makes sense. It matches what our ancestors did. You know, you're sleeping during most of that time period. Um, pushing it up to a 14-hour or 16-hour fast, you know, a few days a week uh, is probably very beneficial for most people. What fasting does uh, in a simplistic way is it kind of cleans out your system it kind of cleans out the old cells. It resets your hormones. It's like a reset for your body. And it's a form of stress, just like exercise is stress and good for you. Or cold exposure, which you've probably talked about, is stress and good for you. Or heat exposure is stress and good for you. Not eating is stress and good for you in a thoughtful strategy, a thoughtful approach. Um, so 12, definitely, 14 to 16, maybe, depending on who you are. Again, if you're a woman over like 45, definitely a woman trying to lose weight, um, I, I probably wouldn't do more than 12 hours. I haven't seen that work great with my clients, and the science doesn't look to support that. Um, but there's other ways to kind of trick the body without not eating, and the, the longevity diet, that book, talks about how to get the hormonal cascade, the, the hormonal reset you're looking for uh, without actually not eating. It's like a three to four day, pretty low calorie vegetarian fast that's not actually traditionally fasting, but that still gives you that, um, 
that boost. And he recommends most people do that every few months to kind of reset the system. So I know that's a lot of information. What I would say is fasting looks to be really good for you in most cases. Do more research and find what kind of fasting and what protocol works best for you. The other thing I would say is just really quick is I'm not a huge fan of fasting for athletes, particularly endurance athletes. Uh, There are some times when longevity and performance kind of butt heads and fasting, I would say, is one of those times. So that doesn't mean you can never fast if you're an athlete, uh, but it does mean you have to be really strategic about when and how you're doing it. Yeah. You know, I've tried it out. I've dabbled into it. Uh, I'm not a big breakfast guy anyway. So I typically just, I, you know, I get my sleep, wake up at like nine in the morning when the kids wake up, don't eat breakfast, don't have my first meal until about one or two sometimes later. So, I mean, like it, it, it works for me for sure. Like the longest period of time. And I guess I want to ask you what's the longest fast that you've ever, that you've ever done. I think for me, I hit right around the 48 hour mark and that's whenever things kind of gotten really weird for me. Cause I was drinking, I was drinking the water with uh, Himalayan salt and a little bit of uh, vinegar, I believe. I can't remember exactly what it was, but just to get the, whatever the Himalayan salt has in it, it's supposed to help you through it or whatever, but yeah. be, working in restaurants and smelling food at every waking moment when I'm trying to do this made it extremely tough, but it definitely was a type of stress that I've never felt before in my whole life. And I guess yeah. what's frustrating for me, Josh, is one question, like I said, how, what's the longest fast you've ever had? And my second part would be with the amount of knowledge that you've gained over the past 20 years in nutrition and helping people on their journey with diet and exercise, it's just not on the forefront of, of us teaching our children these types of things. You know what I'm saying? I, like this guy's done 40 years of research on fasting. I'm only 34. So th- some of the things in his books where there was hard scientific evidence and fact, it was just never taught to us, like the benefits of fasting. Like, so yeah, those, those are my two questions to that. Uh, yeah, there's a lot there. So before I answer those questions, something you said, I think is a really good point. It's a type of stress you had never experienced before. I think there's real value in life, but definitely with fasting in experiencing hardship, like what you learn about yourself and your relationship with hunger when you're fasting, I think is invaluable experience. You definitely learn the difference between, oh, I haven't eaten for three hours, so I'm a little hungry. And then when you haven't eaten for two days, that's like deep hunger. I think there's real value in playing with that and learning what you're capable of and learning to listen to your body more. So that's one thing. Um, the other questions were, Was why don't kids learn it? Oh, and how long has have I fasted? Yeah. So the longest I've ever gone without anything? Oh, that's a good question. A couple days. I think one of those might have been not on purpose when I was backpacking. Um, the longest I've gone with like juice only, I think I did five or seven days. Um, and I don't love it. I mean, I'll be honest doing what I do. I'm supposed to say that I love fasting. My body doesn't seem to love it. And it's really hard for me not to rebound and want to eat everything on the planet after that. Um, so I, I am more of a fan of these 12, 14, 16 hour fasts with maybe a 24-hour fast thrown in once a month um, for me. But you really have to find what works for you. Um, And why don't we teach it to kids? Man, this is a very frustrating subject for me because 
I think we should teach everything to our kids. I think there is no excuse to, I'm going to use a word that people hate, but, but I find it accurate. There is no excuse to poison our kids. Like why I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second. Why are we teaching, why are we teaching young girls how to be entrepreneurial by selling cookies to people? By selling things that we know per, c- create cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. And I say that and people roll their eyes at me. It's like, oh, it's just a cookie. Stop being so reactionary. Well, how do we learn? How do we change? Why can't we have them sell stuff that's actually healthy? I know the response to that is because people won't buy it. But we, we need to start somewhere and draw a line in the sand and say this stuff isn't supporting our our health. It is hurting our kids. It's giving them plaque in their arteries but when they're 10 years old. Like this is not okay. And I know it's not popular to say that and I know it's annoying and I know everybody likes Girl Scout cookies but or or whatever. Everybody likes Oreos, everybody likes chips. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, I know all the things that people say. And we say those things because we like sugar and we like packaged foods and we don't want to change and we don't want to do the hard work and heavy lifting to think differently and change our habits and have hard conversations with our kids. Uh, But it's got to start somewhere. Like we really do have to draw a line in the sand. And if I'm the only voice out there or one of the only voices out there and annoy people by talking about this stuff, I'm willing to do that because I think it's that important. No, it is. Like I said, I have three under five, and it's it's crazy. I guess it's not crazy, but it happens so fast. They start eating solids, you know, and then once they become aware of, of reality a tad bit, and then they realize what sugar is, it's an automatic addiction, and then it's, it's, yep. it creates habits. And, man, my five-year-old, she's sneaky. She's very sneaky, man. Like, she'll wait till like, I'm trying to get the baby down for a nap, then I might close my eyes just for a little bit, and then they're in the, in the cabinet. You know, I have a little lock on it, but they're able to pull the lock off, open it up, grab a chair, put, stack like two um, – they'll stack two other things or whatever it is just so they can reach to where it is that the candy's at. It's they, amazing. It is, yeah. And it's, it's, it is, it's frustrating, man. And, and we're probably going to go the homeschooling route, honestly, because we want to teach those things to our children. I know we could still do that there in public education, but I don't, I don't know. I feel like they're going to get more out of out of us teaching them than than they would at public education because I went through it, man. And then the things that we're describing, the things we're talking about, and most of the things I talk about in my podcast was never taught in school. Yep. Yep, that's right. So yeah, let's uh, let's just uh, so tell us a little bit about the book, man. I, I'm very curious about in the footsteps of greatness. So where where is this at? Where I know that you had tried it a couple times, it didn't end up working yeah. out. And then you finally able to make it happen. So where is this 212 mile stretch or whatever, however long it was? And when did you do it? So this is a uh, trail called the John Muir Trail. It's in California. It stretches from the Yosemite Valley to the top of Mount Whitney. Uh, and then you have to get to the parking lot after Mount Whitney. So the trail is technically 212 miles, I think, 211 miles. But effectively, you're going like 223 miles. And it's called the John Muir Trail because that's all part of the area John Muir explored. Um, It's the John Muir Wilderness. There's this area in the middle called the Range of Light 
that he he coined it that term. And it's just this incredible otherworldly place. You know, you have to go over like 12 passes over 10,000 feet. Uh, it's just like craggy and rocky and beautiful and valleys and pristine lakes. It's it's like nothing you've ever seen before. I've been all over the world. It's the most beautiful place I've ever seen. So I grew up backpacking. My dad took me on my first backpacking trip, actually really close to the John Muir Trail when I was seven. And in hindsight, it's amazing. My dad, my mom let me go on this trip or that my dad actually thought it was a good idea to take a seven-year-old. But it was incredible. And we were out there for two weeks catching trout with using ladybugs as bait and just my uncle and his friend and my dad. And, you know, I tasted coffee for the first time and hated it, but it really, it really just immersed me in the natural world. And uh, my love affair with being outside has never waned since that first time when I was seven. So I, I've been a backpacker most of my life and I got this idea to do, to, to backpack the John Muir trail in my teens. And then uh, I got divorced in my early 20s and thought, what a perfect time to go backpack this thing. But I was kind of out of shape. You know, I was a baseball player growing up. I wasn't yet really an endurance athlete at all. Uh, I did not have a mental plan. I just decided, oh, I'm going to go do this thing. And I, I had a bunch of weight and I got out there and was out there for a couple of days. It rained torrentially, tons of mosquitoes. I remember I was laying at the base of Forrester Pass one night, which is the highest pass other than Whitney on, on the John Muir Trail. And rain is just pelting down. I had a tarp and the rain was pelting down so hard. The tarp was plastered to my body and there's this lightning storm. And I was thinking, what am I doing? And, and then I was just like soaked and everything was chafed. And so the point is it was – I had this negative feedback loop. Once I started thinking this isn't fun anymore, I had no plan for what to do about that mentally. And I managed to talk myself off the trail and I quit. You know, I've got what I came for. I'm uncomfortable. I didn't want to finish this anyway. I don't even remember what the conversation was. But, you know, we all know that kind of negative loop. Once we get once we open the door to quitting, we have all these great excuses that we come up with and rationalize. So I, I quit after a couple of days. Then a couple of years later, I was like, all right, I'm going to go back and I'm going to complete this thing. But still no mental preparation, still no plan for what would happen when it got hard. And like exactly the same thing happened. And my poor girlfriend had to come pick me up from Tuolumne Meadows like two days after she dropped me off like, what the heck is wrong with you, man? I thought you were going to do this whole trail. So those are my failures. Then fast forward 10 years, I had built businesses and I'd become an Ironman triathlete and an ultra runner. And, you know, by all accounts, I was successful looking from the outside in. But that trail was kind of still laughing at me like, yeah, but you haven't beat me. You've quit me twice, dude. So I decided, all right, now I'm ready. Like I'm a different person and who I'm going to have to be in order to conquer that trail. I want that. So I gave myself a training plan. I trained for like six months running and hiking. Uh, my wife actually was my coach for that, my current wife. Um, 
And the most important thing, I gave myself a mental and emotional training plan. Like what happens when it gets hard? What happens when I don't want to be out there? What happens when I'm missing my family? What happens when it hurts? What happens when I'm lonely? So I, I practiced visualization every day. I visualized myself getting to Mount Whitney. I visualized what I would do in those hard moments. Um, I practiced noticing negative self-talk and catching it and changing it to a positive affirmation. I practiced, I practiced gratitude every day, which might seem like, well, what does that have to do with running 220 miles? I think it has to do everything with running 220 miles. Gratitude just put me in the right space to learn and to grow rather than complaining about having to run 10 miles. I was just grateful that my legs worked and my lungs worked and I could be outside. So I, I really dedicated myself to training and preparing. And so I went back and I wanted to run it so that I could kind of put an exclamation point on the experience. And, and I got out there and it was much harder than I thought it was going to be. I couldn't run the whole thing. I kind of fast hiked it and ran it and walked it. I did it in six days, which is fast, but not not the record by any means. Uh, one of my commitments to myself was I still wanted to experience it and I didn't want to miss anything because I was running through the middle of the night. So I still slept every night. Um, you know, and it was really hard and there was a point at which I wanted to quit. And there was a point at which I thought my leg was broken and there was a point at which a bear stole my food, uh, which was all part of the experience. But I, I, I did it and I was really struck with when I was, you know, a few steps toward the end of the trail. Once you're at the end of the trail, you are the tallest point in the continental United States on the top of Mount Whitney. So I was about to be the tallest thing on the continent. Uh, and I, I was just struck like a lightning bolt. Like the power of the human spirit is so amazing. Like I wasn't, I did not feel like proud for myself which sounds kind of weird. I was just really touched and humbled that the human spirit is so incredible. And I really wanted to share that and infuse that in the work I do with people. So that's ultimately why I decided to write the book about that whole experience in the footsteps of greatness. That's awesome. <clears throat> six, six, six days, man. That's crazy. I wonder what the record is, but you almost the record like three days, three days. I mean, six, without sleeping, basically. Right. And that's crazy that people can do that, but they're in tune with their body. Um, so do you almost feel like nature's watching you sometimes whenever you're like going through that experience that like yes. the first, the first thing when you had described to me that the first time you tried it, it was downpouring rain and it, the, the, the tarp had like conformed to your body almost. It's almost like that was nature testing you. And I know that nature doesn't work that way, like to where it's specifically seeking you out because you're on this trail, but it almost feels that way. Right. And then like you gave up, it, it, it's just like nature was trying to like test you, I guess. But so do you feel like nature watches you on your journey in six days? Because one, you saw a bear, it ate your food. Like that's gotta be crazy. And like, I'm sure it woke you up and you knew that something was there like that. Uh, I love this question. Nobody's ever asked me this question before. I don't know that I feel necessarily nature is watching me like that, but I feel very connected to the natural world when I'm out there. I feel like there's an energy exchange happening between us. And I definitely feel like 
you know, I don't know if it's God, I don't know if it's the universe, I don't know what the name for it is, but there's something out there. And I, yeah, I feel like I was being tested for sure. So what was like the, probably the scariest moment in that journey? Was it when the bear ate your food or like just the, the fact that you didn't think you were going to be able to make it? You said you almost thought you broke your leg. Like what was the scariest moment? That's another good question. There were a few. This The bear was scary and that was actually, and I talk about that in the book, that was definitely a nature testing me experience because on one of my younger backpacking trips, the same place actually that I went when I was seven, a bear ate our food. I was with my dad and my girlfriend and my sister. And I heard the bear shake our food down from the tree. And I, I laid there and listened to the bear eat our food and didn't do anything about it because I was too afraid to get up and do anything about it. And then so we had to leave the next day because the bear got all our food. And I had a lot of shame about that for a lot of my life, excuse me. So yeah, fast forward to the John Muir Trail. It's like, well, what are you gonna do this time, big boy? So we heard the bear, same thing. Like I heard something, knew it was a bear. And uh, I say we, cause I had met a friend on the trail. He wasn't a friend yet. I met somebody on the trail and we, camped next to each other and he's become a good a really good friend since then but so we were camped together and i heard this thing and i was like damien i think i think a bear has my food so i got up faced that fear and he was circling under where my food bag was and we got rocks and we started throwing rocks at the bear you're not supposed to hit them but we were trying to scare him um so he finally ran away. He really didn't want to leave. And we went back to bed, got up in the morning. It turns out he didn't want to leave because he had climbed the tree and used his fingernail to cut my food bag and all the food fell on the ground. So in our head headlights, we didn't see that my food was on the ground and that's what he was protecting. <laughs> so he came back when we were sleeping, ate it all. And I had to hike back. 15 miles, drive home, and come back the next week to finish the trail and get more food and stuff. Jeez. So that that was a scary moment laying there like, okay, this is, this is an opportunity to rewrite this story. And I made myself get out of the sleeping bag and face this bear. And I know people say Black bears are like overgrown raccoons. They're not grizzlies. It's not that big of a deal. But let me tell you, when you're out there in the dark and this 1,500-pound creature wants to eat something and you're 20 feet away from them, that's scary uh, for me, at least. No, but that's pretty how many people do that trail a year, though? Uh, the John Muir Trail has become pretty popular ever since Cheryl Strayed wrote wild um wait is that what it's called into the wild yeah no not into the wild what is that what is it called i feel like i'm getting the name wrong but she wrote a book maybe it is wild anyway she wrote a book about doing the pacific crest trail uh even though she had no business doing it um and that really kind of put because the john muir trail is part of the pacific crest trail it put that whole area on the map and 
it gave people who might not consider themselves an outdoors and outdoorsy person or a backpacker it gave them the idea that oh i could do this which that actually is pretty cool but anyway there's way more people out there now than there ever used to be. So bears are probably used to humans, I guess. I don't know if there's ever been like a, a black bear attack on a human being on that trail before. Yes, black bears do attack people, but not very often. They are very used to humans, especially in Yosemite Valley where I was. Um, ex- incredibly used to humans and very smart. Like I was, I actually was supposed to have my food in a, a bear canister so that they couldn't do that. And I thought, I'm going to be moving through it so fast. I don't want that weight and bulk. I'm just not going to bring a bear canister. And I learned my lesson. So, you know, that's exactly what should have happened. <laughs> so it's short of like bears and, and nature and stuff like that, like, I don't know if you ever heard of Mr. Ballin, but he's a pretty big storyteller on YouTube. He's got like 5 million uh-huh. subscribers. And he just goes over these fascinating stories that have happened throughout the world. And there's just been times where people go on hikes like this where – people follow them or like strange things happen at night where it's just like very like not demonic, but I guess kind of scary like that where like this one hiker and they went by themselves and they went through these trails and like, he just felt like he was being followed the whole time. And he'd look back and he'd see the same person like fall. I don't know. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. Although you do get weird things happen out there. And sometimes I think it's just in your head. Like once not backpacking, but once when I was trail running at night, I do uh, like 100 mile ultra runs. So some of the running needs to be at night because the the race is going to be through the night. Uh, so I was out there in Auburn, California at like 2 a.m. And I just felt like I was being followed. And there's bears out there and there's even more dangerous mountain lions out there because they'll follow you and they'll be on your back and crunch through your neck before you even know what's happening. And I was, you know, 10 miles or whatever, eight miles from my car from anywhere. And the entire time I felt like I was being watched and followed. That was pretty freaky. And, you know, I do that all the time. That's the only time I've ever felt that. So. And normally, like when your body has that feeling, it's for a reason. Yes, I I agree with you. (laughs) So I just, I just kind of like looked behind me and tried to look like less of prey although what are you going to do like if a mountain lion wants you it's going to get you yeah but i've never had any human related weird experiences like that that i can remember maybe i blocked them out that's a good thing <laughs> no man we're definitely out of tune with nature i'll be honest um i've been on some uh hiking trips with my friends and stuff and then you know you, again i've had i have three kids i've said it multiple times throughout the podcast it does get tough to to be outside more often and there's this great video I watched, man. It was like 60 seconds. And it's just like the progression of, of technology and what we've done is we've put ourselves inside of our houses. And that's where literally where we spend like 90% of our time if we're not at work, if we're not yep. doing other things. Like literally people are just going inside. They're breathing the same air. They're spraying chemicals everywhere in their house. They're lighting candles that also have chemicals. We're just doing all these things just to keep ourselves inside because this is where we feel so safe we've gotten out of touch with nature. And I think just you going on that trip, man, I think like that should inspire people to, to try, try and do the same. It doesn't have to be to that magnitude. Like, man, I, I live in Missouri. The Ozarks are three hours South. The Ozarks are beautiful. Like it's just gorgeous. Yeah. It's not massive mountains, but, or a lake or whatever it is, you know, it's just crazy that everyone just inside so much, man. Like I, if I go outside right now and I look at my neighborhood, there's no one outside, maybe, <laughs> maybe two I, or three people. 
I 1 million percent agree with you. I think we've insulated ourselves from the outside world and we lost, we've lost that connection. And I think there is so much value to our brains, our bodies, our souls, our spirits, to connecting with the outside world. And, and this is studied. Science will, will back this up also. Like it's just good for us to be outside, to be seeing those colors, to be smelling the fresh air, to be moving our bodies, to feel connected to something bigger than ourselves. It's really, really important. And it doesn't even need to be a three hour drive to the Ozarks. Like uh, a city park has this experience physiologically. Uh, so I think there's two things really. One is what you said, just get outside. Even if it's not far, even if it's not for many hours, get outside, feel the sunshine, smell the air, feel the breeze on your skin, move your body. Like that's really important. The other thing though is, we kind of alluded to this. I, I really think there's value in pushing ourselves further than we maybe think we're capable of. It, again, it doesn't have to be the John Muir Trail, but pitting yourself against something you're not sure you can do and exploring the boundaries of what you believe you're capable of and finding what you're made of and getting really uncomfortable and seeing who you are deep down like that, that is what life is about. That's how we know who we are. That's how we feel alive. We are born to do that. Our cells want to do that. Your spirits want to do that. Uh, so I would really encourage your listeners to whatever your John Muir trail is, throw yourself at it, find a big rock and climb it, whatever that looks like to you, because your life will be immensely more joyful because of it. No, hundred percent agree. And I know there are people, there are exceptions to every rule because there are gamers out there. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not speaking for them, but I'm saying people can become very successful by just being in their house. You know, people who work from home, gamers, streamers, all those things. But I guarantee you, if they go out and they see the wilderness for what it is, it does give new perspective because ultimately that's where we're from. At least that's kind of what I believe in, man. But again, Josh, it just come back. It comes back to me. It's just I just got to do it, man. I just got to take my kids outside and I just got to be a part of nature. And man, when I was my, my daughter's age, like, and I know like a lot of people talk about this. Oh, back in the nineties, like you didn't have to worry about people stealing your kids or you didn't have to worry about being outside. Like, man, I was in creeks, I was climbing trees and it's just like a totally different world. I feel like it's either that or just parents are more paranoid. I don't know which one it is. Um, well, it's both. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of both. Probably for sure. But luckily I haven't, I haven't an acre. My backyard's pretty big. It's fenced in. So we're able to kind of counteract that a little bit, but we need to get back to it, man. I think that we're more capable or we're capable of doing more things than we could ever imagine, but we're never going to tap into that because we are so intertwined with technology and whatever it is, the fourth or fifth re revolutionary or whatever it is we're experiencing right now, I guess the just, you know, in my vision, Josh, I don't know if you've, have you seen the movie Wally? Yes. Oh man. I think that that's what, that's where we're heading. That. I talk about that in one of my books. Yeah. The Barca loungers that are just automated. Yes. That, that is where we're heading and it's really scary. Yeah. Uh, that's not something I look forward to, man, but it's in, I think it's just having conversations like this and hopefully the right amount of people see it and just kind of wake up to it. But then again, I think about it, man, like we're the, we're the Western society. We're the United States. There are third world countries or countries in Europe or countries in Asia where, 
dude, there's no technology and they're just living off the land, eating the food, drinking the water. There's no electricity. They're just doing their thing. Yeah. There's a lot to be learned from those cultures. And the sad thing is a lot of those cultures want to be more like us uh, because, you know, they see our comforts and don't see the dark side of our comforts. Right. Uh, so I, I think we are, we're headed down a scary path where more, you know, the world is trying to be like America and there's going to be more technology and less connection. Uh, so it is scary, but I'm really hopeful. I'm just kind of wired like that. I'm hopeful that these kind of conversations help. And I see the light bulb go off whenever I'm outside with somebody who doesn't get outside a lot. Our, our bodies respond quickly. Like even if you're not somebody who likes hiking, if you go outside and start hiking, five minutes into it, you're like, this is amazing. Why don't I do this more often? Our, our bodies respond. So that to me, that's very hopeful. It's just what it takes, I think, is a willingness to be uncomfortable and to do something different than you normally do. And if you're willing to just lean into that discomfort, uh, you can create any new habit you want. Risk, man. Risk is something that people don't like to do. And to me, that's right. I just I, that's what risk is, is what you just described. But we're getting kind of close to the, the top of the hour, man. There's just a couple of other questions non-related to what we've been talking about, but it is related to nutrition. Um, again, man, just whatever you, the, the amount of information you can consume on TikTok, and I'm not saying that all of it is legit, but there was this perfect video of this guy and he's in his kitchen and he's just kind of walking around and he's about to go into his refrigerator and grab some food. And then like this other video from TikTok pops up and it's like a, this trainer saying, oh no, you can't eat this. You can't eat that because it's got carcinogens and all this. And then he goes to grab a vegetable and then there, there's this guy on TikTok who's saying, don't eat vegetables. There's pesticides all over him and all this other, you know what I, And he's like literally trying to eat absolutely anything he can, but he can't because at so many different angles, you have so many different people saying that all these foods are just contaminated. And as a nutritionist, I'm sure you are well aware of that. How do people kind of guide themselves on a diet or nutrition just in general when you have so many other, I'm not going to call these people experts, but maybe some of them are, some of, the, some of them aren't. How do you kind of guide your way through that? That's a really hard part about trying to be a healthy human nowadays. When I first got my master's degree in nutrition, I was kind of the keeper of the information because the internet wasn't really big yet. Uh, I was the disseminator of the information. Now we all have access to the same information. So, and it's too much information and a lot of it's BS. So most of what I do now is just help people answer your question, help people navigate well, what should I do? What is right for me? Uh, so I would say the, the quick answer is take a breath. Try not to be too anxious about it. <laughs> you can eat healthy. You have to find what works for you. So I'm a big believer in like doing a study on yourself, an N equals one study. So I can tell you what's worked for me. I can tell you what I've seen work for most of my clients. I can tell you what the science says, but I can't really tell you what's going to be best for you. So you need to take all that information and then do a study on yourself. Um, but in general, from what I have seen, what I have read, what I think the science is saying right now, uh, a whole foods plant-based diet is the healthiest approach. Yes, there are pesticides on stuff. Try to eat organic as much as you can. Um, it's, you know, you have to eat something. 
So a whole foods plant-based diet is the healthiest approach. That doesn't mean vegan necessarily, although I think you can be a very healthy vegan. I don't think you need to be vegan. Your body's really adaptive. So if you're eating, you know, very plant forward, lots of colors, local seasonal organic fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, if that's what you're leading with, then if you want to have a little bit of meat, um, in my opinion, that's probably fine. I also think the quality of your, all your food, but definitely your animal products really matters. So, you know, if you're, if you're saying steak is good or steak is bad, well, what kind of steak are we looking at? Are we talking about a grass fed, grass finish, uh, free range cow or a, you know, hormone pumped up, hugely overfed, corn fed cow? Those are not the same food. Um, now, we could argue about, well, both are animal protein and that's decreasing your lifespan. That, that's, that is an argument for another time. Uh, but I would say if you're somebody who wants to eat animal products, do it in moderation if you, if you really want to, a, a small amount, uh, and choose really high quality products uh, and make the majority of what you do, you know, whole food plant-based, nuts, seeds, grains, fruits, and vegetables um, with, with a little bit of fish. Fish is a different argument because fish is an animal product in terms, you know, it's an animal protein that still might cause inflammation, but there's a lot of really good stuff in fish as well. And there's a lot of potentially bad stuff in fish because it's a filter in the ocean. So heavy metals and all of that stuff. So again, my own personal opinion is a plant-based diet with uh, cold water fatty fish a couple times a week is probably the healthiest approach we can take. And just doing your best to get the best quality products you can. And then take a breath and don't give yourself an aneurysm about uh, all the other things that are going to kill you. Everything is going to kill us, right? Like we can't, we can't worry about that. We can just do our best. Right. <laughs> So have you seen with people following that type of diet, I forget the gentleman I had on and he was kind of a nutritionist as well, but he was more about sprouting, like eating sprouts and stuff like that from like broccoli or whatever it was just like, I've not, I've seen it. You know what I'm talking about sprouting, yeah. but he was, yeah. he was kind of on the, along the lines of like, he was in some pretty bad shape in his forties and was able to like cure himself of a, or he was able to get rid of his ailments in his body by eating similar to what you're talking about, just fruits, vegetables, nuts, and just clearing your body, detoxing the body. And I just think it was crazy that, you know, he's helped hundreds of people get rid of, I'm not going to say cancer, but disease, right? And yeah. have you kind of seen that in your practice, like where you've helped people? I'm not saying that you're claiming to be a doctor and curing people, but have you seen people kind of turn, turn, turn a new leaf? Yes, the body really responds. That's something else to be hopeful about. You know, if you're if you're somebody who really has anxiety about this stuff, remember your body is incredibly adaptive. Your body wants to be healthy. It's really good at healing itself if you just kind of give it what it needs. Uh, and there's almost, it's almost never too late. I mean, at some point, obviously it's too late, but you can, you can stop and reverse many diseases, uh, certainly inflammation, by just taking care of yourself and eating, uh, again, for most people, a whole foods plant-based diet uh, is just really super nutritious 
it decreases or re removes a lot of the things that cause disease. Um, so absolutely, you know, with a, with a very vegetable nutrient forward um, diet, uh, your, your body can respond and do some amazing things. Okay. So this is my last question for you. Just, um, so you say the most beautiful place on earth is what was the trail that you did again? Oh, that's, that's tough. We could argue one of, about this. One of the most. I said the, the John Muir trail is yeah. one of the most beautiful places on earth. So I'm curious, man, do you have any more like, uh, hiking trips like, like that scheduled for yourself? Do you want to test yourself? And if so, I got the place for you, man. It's Torngott Mountains up in northern Canada. Have you ever, have you ever heard of that place? I've not been there yet. I'm running in Canada in Revelstoke in September. Where is this place so you're talking about? Torngott Mountains is like untouched by man for the most part. You just do like a quick research, man, of Torngott Mountains. And I, they have like some helicopter aerial view type videos. And my God, dude, it's like one of the most beautiful places on the internet I've ever seen. Ha, wow, I have not heard of this place. Cool, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, rock on, Josh. Where where can we find you, man? Would you got any plugs or anything like that? You working on any new books? Where can we find you, man? Uh, so I have three books. Uh, you can find those on Amazon or on my website, joshmathy.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook a lot. I do a lot of stuff on Facebook, which I know, depending on the demographic, is not great. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I'm also on Instagram. Uh, at smiling J it's just Josh Mathy on Facebook. I don't do TikTok. I'm not amazing at social media. Um, but if, if you want to connect with me, my website or Facebook is definitely a place to do it. Rock on, man. Well, thanks for joining talk junkies is a pleasure. You're an awesome guy, man. You get, you got a really good energy and I appreciate that. And uh, hopefully we can talk again sometime in the future, man. Thank you. I would love that. Yeah. I feel like we could talk about anything for hours. So uh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Rock on, Josh. Have a good day, man. All right, you too. Bye.